On September 22, 2016, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation hosted a book talk with Derek K. Cohen, Assistant Professor of Public Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School, whose book is titled Rape During Civil War. Providing a response were Elizabeth Wood, Professor of Political Science and International and Area Studies at Yale University, and Roger Peterson, Arthur and Ruth Sloan Professor of Political Science at MIT. The seminar was moderated by Catherine Sickink, Ryan Family Professor at the Harvard Kennedy School. This event was co-sponsored by the HKS Women in Public Policy Program, the Carr Center for Human Rights Policy, and the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs. For more information about the Ash Center, please visit ash.harvard.edu. I am uh, Catherine Sickink. I'm the Ryan Family Professor of Human Rights Policy here at the Kennedy School. And I'm affiliated, in fact, with the Carr Center as one of the sponsoring organizations along with the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation. A little bit much, maybe? Okay. Uh, and the Belfer Center of this event. Um, so we are delighted to be here today to, um, for this book launch of, uh, of Derek Cohen's new book. Uh, and in the best tradition of the Kennedy School, this is a book that is deeply researched, theoretical, and simultaneously speaking to some of one of the most important policy issues of our time. Uh, let me just explain a little how the event will go on. First, I will give a brief introduction of our uh, panelists. Uh, then uh, we will uh, turn first to uh, Professor Cohen to have her give you an overview of the book, 15, 20 minutes, and then our, each of our uh, two panelists, remaining two panelists will speak for approximately 15 minutes, and then we will open it up to your uh, questions and comments. So uh, first I want to begin by many of you, many of you here already know uh, Professor Derek Cohen, but for those of you who may not yet know her, I just want to say she's an assistant professor of public policy here at the Kennedy School. She received her PhD at Stanford University. Her research and teaching interests focus on international relations, including international security, civil war, and especially dynamics of violence, gender, and conflict. The book we're discussing today, Rape During Civil War, examines variation in the use of rape during recent civil conflicts. And the research for the book draws on extensive field research in Sierra Leone, Timor-Leste, and El Salvador. Now, the book is a very much revised version of her dissertation, but the dis I want to point out the dissertation won one of the American Political Science Association Best Dissertation Awards. Uh, and for her earlier work, an article also on sexual violence in wartime, Cohen also received the Heinz Ela Award for the best article published in the American Political Science Review, a major review in our field of political science, so no small feat. Now, after Derek Cohen's remarks, we're very privileged to have two leading experts to provide comments. And uh, first, uh, well, actually, uh, first comments will come from uh, Roger Peterson. Roger is the Arthur and Ruth Sloan Professor of Political Science at MIT, where he's taught since 2001. He's an expert on civil war, civil military relations, and ethnic politics, focus on Eastern Europe and the Balkans in particular. He's written, written three books. The latter of those, the most recent one, is called Western Intervention in the Balkans, The Strategic Use of Emotion in Conflict, from Cambridge in 2011. And it has won so many awards that I actually can't list them all here because it would take too long. 
to, uh, <laughs> but he is currently working on a book manuscript with the interesting title that already makes me want to read it called Social, A Social Science Guide to the Iraq Conflict. Then finally, we'll uh, turn to remarks uh, by Elizabeth Wood. She's a professor of political science and international area studies at Yale University. We're particularly grateful for uh, Professor Wood coming up from New Haven just for this event. She is the author of two books, Forging Democracy from Below, Insurgent Transition in South Africa and El Salvador, and Insurgent Collective Action in Civil War in El Salvador. Also the co-editor of, of others, as well as the author of numerous articles and book chapters. Most importantly for our purpose for this event, she is a very major expert on exactly the topic of Professor Cohen's book, Sexual Violence During War. She's written a number of articles and chapters on this topic, and in fact is writing a book on the topic yourself right now, right? And also for here, again, here at the Kennedy School, I, I should note that she's also contributed, as has Derek Cohen, a number of very important public policy publications and made interventions on the topic of rape during war. So we're very appreciative of uh, the panelists, and we're going to turn right away to uh, Dara Cohen and her overview of her book. Thank you. Uh, so at first I just wanted to thank Catherine for that very generous introduction. Um, and I also just want to reiterate, I want to thank the Ash Center for hosting, organizing, and sponsoring this event, the Carr Center for co-sponsoring and helping to plan it, um, and the Women in Public Policy Program and the Belfer Center for their assistance in promoting the event. So that is, I think that covers almost every center at the Kennedy School. So <laughs> I am indebted to my, uh, the school. Um, I also want to thank um, Libby Wood, who is my mentor, my co-author, and my friend, um, for coming in from Yale just for this event, and more importantly, for your many years of feedback um, and, and mentorship on this project. Um, thank you to, to Roger, whose work I have admired for many years, but who I have actually just met for the very first time today, and to Catherine, uh, Catherine Sicking, for moderating the discussion today, um, as well as her encouragement to hold this event, um, and finally for her comments on many earlier drafts of, of this work as well. Um, and finally, thank you to the audience. Thank you very much for everyone um, for coming today. And we do have a couple of seats here in the front if people would like to come forward and sit down. You're welcome to. Um, I thought I would start by just reading one of the um, interview excerpts that I did um, as part of my project. This is one of the um, pieces of interview that I used to actually open the book. Um, and it's really one of my most memorable interviews. Um, and it's an interview I did with um, some um, survivors and, and families of survivors of rape. Although, as I'll explain, most of the work for this book is really focused on armed organizations. Most of my work was focused on interviews with members of armed organizations. I also interviewed some people who have themselves suffered rape. Um, so this, this quotation is from a woman that I interviewed in Sierra Leone. And part of why her, her story is memorable to me is because not only is her story so incredibly heartbreaking, but also um, as part of my, my interviews, they were, all of my interviews were anonymous, so I never collected anyone's name, but I did ask for some other details, including um, birth dates. And so this particular woman happened to have my exact birth date. She was also born in May of 1979. So part of what haunts me about her story is because um, of the obviously very stark differences in, in what turned out to be our life circumstances. Um, I, I, I want to note just briefly that this is a disturbing descript description. So what she says during our interview. Um, so she says, uh, the rebels finally came to Freetown when I was 18 years old. I was hiding in a house with my family when the rebels came to the door and said that they were here to get ladies. 
They grabbed me and they brought me outside. They tied my legs and arms to a car. Eight men raped me in front of my father and my whole family. I was a virgin and I was very attractive. In my family, we don't talk about what happened to me. In Africa, virginity is highly prized. I will not be able to marry now. Her story is horrifying, and there are many, many more stories like this in the war-affected areas of the world that have experienced episodes of mass rape. But there are actually many existing books um, and reports, NGO studies, that have collected just these kinds of stories. Um, and part of what I wanted to accomplish with this project is not just document more of these kinds of stories about this terrible form of violence, but also to seek to understand why rape is used during wartime, and particularly understand it from the perspective of those people who are doing it or using it, the members of armed groups. Um, I realized as I was starting this project that much of what we know about rape is, is extrapolated from victims' and survivors' narratives. But one of the central questions for me is, what does it really mean for rape to be used as a, quote, weapon of war? Um, which is how it's often described in our current policy discourse. In addition, one of my goals with this project was to approach this very visceral, emotional, and difficult topic using the tools of social science inquiry, in much the same manner that many of my colleagues have studied other forms of disturbing political violence, such as mass killing, genocide, and child soldiering. Um, so for the most part, this, the book and also my presentation today um, approaches the topic with a type of scholarly distance rather than outrage, although um, outrage certainly guides my choice of this topic uh, as well as my passion for assisting policymakers and practitioners in attempting to reduce the incidence of wartime rape in the future. Um, so how do I approach this topic in this book? Um, as Catherine mentioned, I did research in three post-conflict countries in Sierra Leone, Timor-Leste, and El Salvador. Um, both Sierra Leone and Timor-Leste are mass rape wars. In Sierra Leone, the majority of the rape was perpetrated by a rebel group. In Timor-Leste, it was um, perpetrated by the Indonesian military. Um, and El Salvador is something of a negative case. It's not that it had no rape, but it had a much lower incidence of rape, and the rape that happened was mainly perpetrated by the armed forces. Most of what I was doing, again, was interviews focused on ex-combatants, um, asking them about their experiences with violence in their respective armed groups. And I combine these interviews with a cross-national statistical study that looks at all major civil wars between 1980 and 2012. So I want to just say that the book is about rape by armed fighters against civilians during contemporary civil wars. Um, and I want to note that this is a subset of the sexual violence that happens in the world. Right? Um, what occurs during wartime is not just rape, but has we now have getting better and better at documenting what happens during wartime. And there are many forms of sexual violence. I also want to say there's no consensus definition of what constitutes sexual violence, but there are many forms of sexual violence that happen during wartime. We have documented cases of things like forced marriage, sexual slavery, sexual mutilation, forced pregnancy, forced abortion, forced sterilization. And all of these forms of violence are important. They all deserve study, but I think they all probably uh, follow their own distinct logic, and they're not the topic of, of this book. Um, despite the attention that some of these other forms of sexual violence have received in recent years, including things like the sexual slavery um, instituted by ISIS, a system of sexual, sexual slavery, rape is just one type of violence, sexual violence that we see during wartime, but it's probably the most common type, or at the very least it's the most commonly reported type of direct physical sexual violence that occurs during wartime. Rape occurs during peacetime, of course, as well, um, and, we, and in other types of wars that aren't civil wars, and in other kinds of violent events that don't rise to the level of a war. Um, and we also know that rape 
even during the context of wartime, is far more likely to be perpetrated by an intimate partner, by, for example, a husband, a boyfriend, or an ex-partner, than by an armed fighter. So this is something of a critique and also something of a self-critique. Um, I refer to this in the class I teach on gender and war here at the Kennedy School as the problem of fo focusing on extraordinary violence versus the kind of violence of every day. Um, if, if we, as an international community, really care about violence in the ways that people suffer, both men and women, we probably should care far more about things like intimate partner violence and interpersonal violence than we currently do. Um, but that being said, this particular work, again, is about rape um, during civil war by armed actors against civilians. Um, so what do we know about what rape actually looks like in wartime? Um, there are many, many misconceptions about what wartime rape and sexual violence um, look like. I've written about this somewhat in some of my research, um, but I want to focus today on just three. The first is that rape is not just a form of violence perpetrated by men against women. And I say this although women comprise the majority of reported victims of many forms of sexual violence, including rape. Uh, men actually comprise the majority of reported victims of nearly every other form of wartime violence, including killing, forced recruitment, beating, displacement, disappearance. Um, but we know that rape is perpetrated by women in some contexts and also against men in, in many contexts as we've, as we've become better at collecting data. Second, rape during wartime is not limited to any particular region of the world, um, and especially it's not limited to sub-Saharan Africa, despite what we often read in the news and in policy reports. Uh, it's reported all over the world, and so one of the my tasks in this project was to really map out where rape has been reported during contemporary civil wars. Um, and finally, despite the image that we often have, and despite uh, my focus in some ways in this book on the Revolutionary United Front, the rebel group in Sierra Leone, um, rape is not just a problem of unruly rebels. And in fact, um, some of the data that I collected for this book suggests that the, actually the majority of reports of wartime rape uh, include perpetrators that are representatives of their state. Uh, and actually many of those reports include sexual violence against prisoners and detainees, often suspected insurgents. I think there are some interesting patterns that maybe someone else will explore in, in their dissertation and book someday. One, one key pattern that I emphasize in this book that I find especially important and has been overlooked in a lot of the previous literature is that a, is that a lot of wartime, reported wartime rape is gang rape, which is to say rape by multiple perpetrators. When we've asked questions about the number of perpetrators um, in a variety of wartime contexts, something like 60, 70, 80 plus percent of reported wartime rape is gang rape. Um, and the reason this is remarkable is that gang rape is relatively rare during peacetime. Um, and this is true across cultures, across countries. Um, it seems to be sort of universally the case. So this, is, I think, is a really important puzzle that a lot of previous work has, has not addressed. There are a set of common stories that scholars and others have told about why wartime rape happens. And part of what I do in this book is try to distill some of these, of these explanations and talk about what they are lacking or how they're flawed, how they might be biased in some ways. Um, so the scholarship is really filled with explanations for why we see rape during wartime. Um, Libby Wood has counted something like over a dozen different theories, um, drawing on a number of different um, literatures, ranging from theories um, in evolutionary um, biology, uh, that perhaps men are evolutionarily prone to rape, uh, to the type of war. It's, it's possible that ethnic conflicts such as Rwanda and Bosnia, which are really two of the most studied and well-documented cases of mass rape in recent history, these cases might show us that ethnic wars are more likely to be characterized by rape. 
Um, but the three of the most powerful and important explanations that I talk about throughout this book are first, opportunity, second, ethnic hatred, and third, gender inequality. So I'll just kind of talk about them just briefly and why I think these explanations ultimately um, are, are incomplete. Uh, the first is a story about opportunity, which I think is probably our most common conventional wisdom about why rape happens during war, during wartime. Does civil war create the conditions that allow mainly men to commit rape on a massive scale? And often the story here is about the degree of state failure, the level of chaos that happens in wartime, the fact that there's very little enforcement of laws in some cases, that there are young men armed with guns sort of roaming the countryside, maybe they have access to drugs um, or alcohol in a way that they didn't during peacetime. And a lot of these arguments assume that there is a kind of inherent male desire to commit sexual violence that is kept in check by society when it's not at war. But, of course, not all men rape, even during wartime, even under conditions of complete chaos and even given ample opportunity. And we know that wartime rape is often quite brutal and, as I mentioned, often has multiple perpetrators. So while opportunity may help us understand some rape by some individuals, it doesn't really help us understand how or why armed groups as a whole adopt it um, or why the form of rape changes, again, from kind of mostly single perpetrator rape to Second are arguments about ethnic hatred, and the question here is, does ethnic hatred, which we know to be at the root of many contemporary conflicts, uh, seem to account for increased incidence of rape? And I find in this book that the answer is no, uh, that increased reports of rape do not seem to be associated with ethnic wars, even with secessionist wars, um, or even with periods of genocide during civil wars. Um, and one kind of depressing reason for this is that ethnic hatreds are very common. And they're so common, they don't really help us explain the incidence of mass rape, which is, thankfully, fairly rare. So put another way, there are many ethnic wars with no rape, there are some ethnic wars uh, with mass rape, and so ethnic hatred doesn't really help us, again, um, it doesn't serve as a key explanatory variable. Finally, I consider in the book arguments about gender inequality, which is a question around how does how women are treated in terms of their social, political, and economic rights in a country influence whether women of that country may be subjected to rape if that country experiences a civil war? On the one hand, the answer, I think, is obvious, and it's yes. Right? Um, rape is chosen, certainly, in part due to its symbolic meaning. It's closely tied to the ways that women are viewed in that society, um, to ideas and norms around sex and sexuality. And the research does show us, the political science research clearly establishes that countries that have poor gender equality are much more likely to experience wars, controlling for everything else we know to be associated with the onset of war, than are more gender equal countries. But given that a war has already begun, which is the universe of cases that I study in this book, whether a country has better rights for women doesn't then help us distinguish which of these countries is more likely to have an episode of mass rape. In the book, one of my critiques of the current scholarship on wartime rape is that we've really been focusing in some ways on the wrong level of analysis and as a result asking the wrong questions. Macro level factors like the type of war or the level of gender equality in a country don't really get us very far in understanding the root causes of rape. Um, so one of the most important takeaways from this book is that the key factor to understanding why rape occurs in some places and not others is, uh, is the armed group itself. Not the geographic region or the country or the religion, majority religion or the type of war or broad background conditions like level of gender inequality. While some of these factors do matter quite a lot in certain specific contexts, I argue that really the armed group itself is key. I think there's an illustration of this um, in, in the case of Sierra Leone, which again is, is generally considered a mass rape war. Um, in the Sierra Leone Civil War, there were five or six major armed groups fighting in that war, 
And these groups are demographically very, very similar in terms of the ages of the recruits, the backgrounds, the tribal affiliations of the recruits, the level of education, um, their, their level of poverty. Uh, but only one of these groups, the Revolutionary United Front, or the RUF, is thought to have committed the vast, vast majority of the rape in that war. And so this raises for us a really interesting social science puzzle about why the RUF rapes so frequently, but not the other groups. And again, I think it makes clear why explanations based on broad social conditions like patriarchy or gender inequality, the level of development in the country, etc., why these are insufficient to really help us understand the phenomenon. So why does rape happen in wartime? One of the, the, argu the argument I advance in this book I call combatant socialization. Um, and the kind of key central finding in the book is that armed groups that recruit their fighters through abduction, through kidnapping, are more likely to commit mass rape and are particularly more likely to commit gang rape than are groups that recruit their fighters voluntarily. Um, in the book, I draw on anthropology and sociology and look at literature on gang rape and I argue that gang rape creates social bonds between groups of between members of, of groups um, who do not know each other well and who really have no reason to trust one another. In a nutshell, I argue that participating in group rape helps break ties to fighters' past and forges new bonds with their peer fighters. Sexual violence, in this view, is a unit-level phenomenon which is innovated from the bottom up for the purpose of creating cohesion amongst groups of frightened strangers. So I argue in the book that this is a new explanation that I find strong support for in the statistical analysis and through a series of case studies um, in, in, uh, supported by fieldwork that I did with former fighters in Sierra Leone, Timor-Leste, and El Salvador. Um, I do want to say it's not the only explanation I find support for. In each of the chapters of the book, I look at other possible explanations for what could explain rape in that particular case. Um, and ultimately, I find some support for arguments about opportunity, that reports of wartime rape are also associated with measures of state weakness and state collapse. Um, I find that insurgent groups that are funded through lootable resources like drugs and diamonds um, seem to be more likely to commit rape, but these, are, these all sort of fall under the um, umbrella of our arguments about opportunity. But we might ask ourselves why rape is used for creating cohesion in these kinds of armed groups that have forcibly recruited their fighters. Why not something um, more pleasant like chess or soccer? And I think the answer to that, this is something I really struggled with as I was kind of revising the dissertation into a book, because I'm often asked this question. And I think the, answer, the best answer I can give to this question is that there is evidence from a number of contexts that sexualized violence conveys meanings that other forms of violence simply don't. Study this kind of, of using sexualized violence in this way in fraternities, in prisons, and in gangs. The central argument is that groups of men or groups of mostly men use sexualized violence essentially as a means for sorting and organizing their group. One very important finding from laboratory experiments from psychology is that when men's masculinity or sense of manhood is threatened in some way, men seem to be more likely to choose than a task, if they're asked in a laboratory setting, that involves some form of physical aggression, like boxing, rather than something more neutral, for example, um, completing a crossword puzzle. I think this finding and the set of findings around this uh, form the basis for what one set of scholars calls precarious manhood. And at its root, this concept refers to the need for men to physically perform or demonstrate their masculinity, their manhood. So moving this from the laboratory into the wartime context, I argue that it's really hard to imagine a more masculinity-threatening act than abduction into an armed group. Rape is both physical and a sexual act of aggression that may enable the perpetrator to gain back some semblance of their lost sense of masculinity. 
Um, I do want to say that this is not limited to men. Uh, one of the interesting observable implications of my argument is that when women have been abducted also into mostly male armed groups, and I should say even our most highly feminized groups are mostly male, um, then they too will also sort of aim to demonstrate the need to be perceived as a real fighter. And in part, this happens through imitating this particular form of violence, gang rape. Um, against other um, women, against female civilians. And this is something that I documented in the Sierra Leone case. Um, so turning very briefly to some of the, of the interview evidence, um, the statistical evidence from the book shows a clear association between abduction and rape. Um, but I think some of the most interesting evidence from the book is, the case, is in the case studies. So I draw on a variety of types of data in the case studies, ranging from testimonies given to truth and reconciliation questions to my own interviews. And really the kind of over, overriding question was, is there evidence that rape actually serves the function that I'm arguing, that it creates cohesion? Um, we could imagine a scenario where um, people would be observing acts of rape and sexual violence, and they would report back to a researcher years later that this was something that was horrifying to them. For example. And in fact, that's not really what I find at all. Many of the ex combatants that I interviewed across these contexts instead suggested that rape was something that was quite cohesive and not divisive. So, some very brief interview snippets from Sierra Leone. One fighter said, After gang rape, we would feel good, we would talk about it, we would discuss it amongst ourselves, we would laugh about it. Another ex combatant said, We would watch each other and joke about how some people were not doing it correctly. Um, and lastly, which suggests um, in this last quotation the, the incredibly strong social pressures that existed to participate. Um, one ex-combatant said some men would choose not to rape and they were teased. We would ask them, maybe you are a homosexual? So again, this kind of social ostracization that would result from not participating, but I think one of the really important things is that even in cases that we often, often talk about as kind of mass rape wars or rape was used as a weapon of war, we often assume that there's a commander on the top sort of ordering rape from the top down, and I really didn't find that in any of the, the cases. So let me just conclude by saying a couple words about why I think this, these findings matter for policy. I think one of the most important things that, come out, that comes out of this project and some of the other work I've done is that when we observe high levels of wartime rape, this should not imply to us that rape was used as a strategy of war, ordered from the top down by a commander for an overt military purpose. Um, and I argue rather that uh, rather than being ordered, rape is probably more commonly tolerated by commanders but innovated from the bottom up rather than ordered from the top down. Another important implication of, of the research is that abduction by, of fighters by armed groups could potentially serve as an early warning sign for policymakers who are interested in intervening before things become severe. And lastly, there are a set of kind of legal implications. Um, most importantly, I think, is the kind of chain of command evidence that uh, lawyers are often most interested in, looking for sort of orders again from the top down, are likely very rare. It's not that they don't exist, and we do have some well-documented cases where there have been orders to rape, but I think those kinds of cases will be very rare. And I think this is especially important because a lot of the policy discourse around how to prevent wartime rape now is focused on the so-called impunity gap. And the idea here is that by prosecuting yesterday's perpetrators for rape, we will deter tomorrow's perpetrators. Uh, and we really lack evidence about whether, in fact, um, this is uh, likely to be a deterrent for future acts of rape, although there may be lots of other very important reasons why we would want to have trials. So what can we do? 
one of the things that I end up arguing both in this book and in an op-ed that actually Libby Wood and I co-authored that appeared in the New York Times last October is that is two main things. Uh, the first is simply naming and shaming armed groups that are perpetrating rape. And we argue that this is likely to be especially effective for um, cases where the, the armed groups that are perpetrating rape are state actors. Um, that social science research suggests that these are the states are the behavior of states is most likely to be um, influenced by this kind of naming and shaming mechanism. Um, and lastly, that thinking creatively about how to increase costs for commanders. So I've suggested that commanders are more likely to tolerate this uh, type of violence rather than order it. So how can we sort of increase the costs of tolerating rape for commanders? And one potential way of doing this is making aid and support for armed groups um, contingent on not being reported as perpetrators of rape. Right, I will end there. Thank you. Look forward to the comments. Thank you, Jira. And for the people who may have come in later, I just wanted to again say that this uh, is uh, Professor Roger Peterson, who's the author and Russell Professor of Political Science at MIT. Thanks. Well, I thought, how can I say something a little bit different? There's a lot of reviews, a lot of good reviews, and talk about the book and some things up. Do I have something more unique to say from a different perspective? So I think maybe I do on two issues here. One is combat socialization, which is one of the major fundamental points in the book, and the other is sort of ritualized violence. So why do I have something a little bit different to say maybe on combat socialization? Well, I've been working the last four or five years with uh, military officers coming back from... Iraq, and I try to get them at the uh, company level, captains at the company level. And because of that, I was asked to serve on the MIT ROTC advisory board. So I'm on that. I was also asked to serve as advisor to incoming freshmen in the Army ROTC program. And the idea is that I can connect undergraduates at MIT with actual officers who have served, and they can... Um, I think partly the military wants that to scare all the people that aren't serious about becoming officer out, out by actually talking to somebody who fought. But I think the point here is ROTC is all about leadership. The graduates that will come out will be first lieutenants, and they'll be in charge of a platoon. Platoon usually has 25 to 50 soldiers, depending on where you're at in the services. And the entire game in that is to build small unit cohesion. Leadership and small unit cohesion, that's what you're taught in the ROTC. So there's a whole program about how to do this. And Dara's book is really getting at how this is happening in this other kind of way in these war zones. So just to put a very simple graph on the board here, you have a unit and there's a commander of the unit, first lieutenant at the, at the platoon level, captain at the uh, a company level, but there will be individuals, and these individuals will have different levels of um, abilities and things related to cohesion. They'll have different levels of trust, different levels of morale and pride in what they're doing. They'll have different levels of cohesion. Now, the X pluses I'll put here, this, these are the ones that have those qualities, that have high cohesion. Um, the X minuses would be the ones who don't have those qualities. And the axes would be someplace in between. Now, you'll get people thrown into a unit in wartime. And as Dara points out in the book, these X pluses are likely to come from volunteers. They're going to come and they're already going to be wanting to be in the unit. They'll have morale. They'll have some form of cohesion. Uh, or you might get 
groups joining from outside that already knew each other and already had cohesion between themselves and, and morale, and they'll become the X pluses. Now, the X minuses are the ones that are the problematic one that Dara is, is, is dealing with. These are the ones that get press ganged into service, who don't want to be there but are forced into it, or they're abducted. They don't want to be there. They have no morale, no cohesion. And then the middle ones are sort of, this is what you'd expect in the conscript army. People come in and, you know, they're not so cohesive or morale, or, but they're not this. Now, what is the game in Dara's cases is that gang rape is going to turn the X minuses into the Xs or the X pluses. And uh, that's, that's a pretty interesting kind of, um, kind of way to do this. Uh, so the unit commander looks at the nature of the unit, looks at the mixture of these types, and tries to move as many members as possible into sort of the X-plus category. So one thing here, the ratio of the X-plus, X, this is not what Dara says, but how I might look at it, X-minus can help predict the actions of the small unit commander. So one way of looking at Dara's book, press ganging and abduction creates a high proportion of the X-minuses. Gang rape is a way to move them to X-plus or at least to X. Why does the local commander promote or allow this means to social cohesion? Why? why? And the answer that Dara provides is there are no other alternatives, really. There's no chance to, to choose the more basic methods of an ROTC program to, to transform these kinds of people. Uh, the military has, they love formulas, the military, like F3EA for the special forces, that's find, fix, finish, exploit, analyze, clear, hold, build, they have these things. For, for cohesion, cohesion equals S plus S plus S, which is stability plus stress plus success equals cohesion. So stability is you get the same members for a long time. You get the same X's in here. They'll know each other, and they'll, they'll gradually become X pluses through their own experience. How else do they come? They get into stressful situations. That's the second S. And then through stress and through being in combat and actually having, having that experience together, they get transformed into the cohesive unit. And the third thing is success. You actually perform a successful action in the field. This gives you pride, builds morale. So these are the things the, the usual military does to create this cohesion. Now, gang rape is going to create this cohesion in the situations um, a lot of the, the Dara has. So this brings to, to up a few, few other issues, though. So you look, here's the same graph I had here. And you'll get the method of recruitment. That's going to determine the proportion of X, X pluses, X minuses. You also get wartime attrition. If you get more people killed off here, you have to bring people up. You have to bring up more abduction, more press ganging, and you'll get more X minuses. And you also, though, here, you get general standards of professionalism. Is the military actually trying to use other means to do it? And in, in these cases, a lot of times there isn't another mean. And then the unit commander has to choose team building common actions or, or gang rape well you only you only get gang rape now the other thing military people do they don't talk about what Dara's talking about is horizontal cohesion which is what's going to happen here the unit commander choosing one of these kinds of things to build cohesion inside the unit but the military also talks about vertical cohesion which is the cohesion between the higher level hierarchy and the smaller unit. Vertical cohesion is considered to be built on having clear, consistent standards. 
if you know that what the officers above you expect, if you have clear standards and you obey them, and you'll get, uh, you'll have sort of this is going to enforce the the chain of command. There's also talk of organizational cohesion, and these are on broader perceptions. This is why the military inculcates their people into history of the Marines, the battles. All the people who go to West Point, even ROTC, will learn the, the battles and you build some self-perception of being in an organization that has pride. You also have societal cohesion, which is the competence and honesty between the Army and its society. Now, Dara's argument is that mass rape can create horizontal cohesion in, under certain circumstances. The unit commanders are choosing that or allowing that. It is b beneficial both to the unit in that it changes this proportions of X and X pluses. It can also benefit the individual because the individual gets abducted, gets thrown into here. He doesn't want to be an X minus. He doesn't want to be ostracized. He actually wants to become an X plus or an X. So there's the advantages at the individual level. There's the advantage at the horizontal level. But the interesting thing about Dara's treatment is what about the other levels? Because you'd think that if, even if you see an advantage of building horizontal cohesion, doesn't mass rape destroy vertical cohesion, organizational cohesion, and societal cohesion? Vertical cohesion, doesn't it reduce the standards and the consistency of the, the standards of the, the, the hierarchy? Doesn't it create a uh, less pride in the organization of the whole, doesn't it reduce societal cohesion for obvious reasons? So one, one of the things here is why doesn't the higher leadership crack down on this practice? And so the, the questions, I think these are some of the, uh, Dara addresses this, but I think these are questions which will probably continue to be um, sought here. Is it because the higher leadership itself sees the horizontal benefits as outweighing the negative aspects? Or is it that the higher leadership cannot do anything about what goes on at the lower levels because it's just not a professional army with a chain of command? Or is it the higher leadership is not really aware of the practice of mass rape or is in some convenient form of denial? So this is um, sort of ideas of cohesion at different levels. and. And the argument, I think, has something to say about all of this. You'll notice, too, in comparison to Calivas, who I just taught. Unfortunately, we all have to teach Calivas all the time, Civil War. I went to grad school with the guy, so this, this really grates me. But we have to do it. But he talks about <laughs> the level of violence as his dependent variable. But violence for Calivas is jointly produced. It's what people at the higher master cleavage level want, their politics and it's what people at the lower levels want. And these two things together are jointly produced. Now, Dara's book is saying it's not jointly produced, mass rape. Mass rape is coming from the needs at the bottom, not from the top. It's not a strategic part of the game. And so it's not jointly produced, as opposed to violence in general in Civil War um, and versus Calivas, it is sort of produced singly at, the, at what the local needs are. Now, the other thing military people talk about cohesion is social cohesion and task cohesion. And I think Dara mentions this someplace, uh, if I remember right. Task cohesion is the shared commitment among members to achieving a goal that requires the collective efforts of the group. A group with high task cohesion is composed of members who share a common goal and are motivated to coordinate their efforts as a team to achieve that goal. Task cohesion is directly connected to military effectiveness. 
social cohesion is the extent to which group members like each other, prefer to spend their social time together, enjoy each other's company, and feel emotionally close to one another. Now, there's work, I believe, that, that Dara cites this work that shows that task cohesion is not that connected to social cohesion. Um, you can have social cohesion sort of on its own. And social cohesion, as Dara points out, is not really connected to the outcomes of civil war. It has its own logic because people want the social cohesion at the, at the bottom. But is social cohesion really unconnected to the outcome? And I think on page 27, you talk about how this prevents desertion, social cohesion, and other kinds of things, which do seem related more to the, the task cohesion here. So the third, third point here is, you know, in explaining the ratios that come here, is there a factor that explains both the ratios and the choice of gang rape and can actually talk about the sources, the other sources of the distribution of the quality of troops you have. And one of these, I think, is just military competence. Professional standards, there are some militaries that just don't have standards, that don't have a chain of command, that don't have information flowing up and down, who are lacking in, in, um, in standard operating procedures. And this leads to battlefield losses, which has more higher attrition. It leads to poor recruitment methods, and it leads to really skewing this towards getting a bunch of X minuses in here. Uh, now, Dara does deal with a variable of troop quality at one point, which is she uh, formulates as military expenditures divided by military personnel. But I'm not sure this is such a, a good measure. If you looked at the U.S. versus the North Vietnamese, Viet Cong, and Vietnam, and I have a, a student that just finished dissertation, Alec Worsnop, that looks at insurgent military effectiveness, it's maybe not the, maybe it's not the, the simple amount of resources they have, but how those resources are formed. And what Libby Wood's work is doing is how that military develops norms uh, in, a, in its own way that are much more professional, which then, if you have this, you can convert these X minuses through other means, team building, common action, rather than relying on, on gang, rape, or gang rape. So that's what, I'll quickly go to the other thing, which is just the discussion of violence and ritual. So I wrote a book actually a long time ago, which dealt with riots and pogroms, and um, a lot of the qualitative work I did is very similar to the style that, that Dara has, actually, where you go through and you look at patterns, puzzling variation in the amount and the timing of this type of violence. But if you look at the, the riot literature on the whole, like Donald Horowitz and his massive tome on riots, is, uh, he has his lead first chapter, Say It With Murder. The perpetrator speaks to an audience through violence versus the victim. And it's both the quality and the quantity of that violence. If you look at Steve Wilkinson in Votes to Violence, violence is used as a signal and framing device towards an audience, and it's a message which is particularly targeted at election time. If you look at Paul Brass, Paul Brass also looks at elections, but says there's an institutionalized riot system to produce this message. Now, the question here I have is, you have rape to do things internally here, but these are public events. And I think one of the things that I'm not where, where this re research might go is more towards who's the audience for this? And isn't there, isn't, Dara finds that the 
identity of the victim is not important. You just have to rape somebody in order to have costs for those X minuses to become more cohesive. But in most of the riot work and all of the, the, this other riot work I've mentioned, the identity of the victim is important because it tells a story to the audience about what that violence is going to do. And that's part of the game, is to tell a political story about that violence. And two last points. So there's one point about how many of the perpetrators, how many of these people are actually perpetrating the violence? I noticed in, I think, the one case, you said that the, the mean was only three perpetrators. So what does that mean in the whole ritualistic sense of creating a spectacle which has these types of overtones? And participation in rape, is it that... It's the X pluses and the X minuses. Is it just the X minuses that need to participate as part of an initial ritual? If it's all of these together, you know, that, that has a different meaning about who is participating in it. And you get to this point about whether it's an institutionalized sort of system in the way Paul Brass said about riots. So I'll stop on that, those points. Thank you very much. And now uh, the final comments from Elizabeth Wood. Uh, it's really my pleasure to be here to celebrate this remarkable book. Catherine used the word remarkable as well, and let me linger a bit on why it's remarkable. This book has it all, an original data set, interviews gathered in three field sites in three continents, an original argument, and important policy implications. So I'll focus on its contributions to social science. In short, the achievements of the book and the related articles. So about the data set, Dara painstakingly coded the reported incidents of rape by state forces and rebels from 1980 to 2009. Being the good uh, social science that she is, she, uh, acknowledging the fact that these numbers are very fuzzy, she binned it, right? So zero meant that there was no rape reported by that force in that year. One meant that there were scattered reports. Two is more frequent. And then three is reports of massive or systematic rape. Uh, and so by constructing this data set, then she could document the variation in who and to what extent uh, we see organizations engage in rape, both states and rebels. And so uh, as um, she laid out, that means that she could debunk many of the extant claims about rape during war, many of which had been based on cases like Bosnia and Rwanda, right? So we were making the mistake of studying only those cases where rape had been massive and thinking we therefore understood rape during war. So by showing uh, that not all armed organizations, be they states or rebel groups, engage in moderate to high levels of rape, um, she confirmed a claim that had been made based on case studies that there was this, that this variation existed and um, really nailed this very important policy implication that rape is not inevitable during war. If we see a lot of armed organizations that don't engage in rape, then some of the rhetoric around this uh, really needs to change, and that gives policy a very good uh, way to grab onto this issue and do something about it. So second fact that she showed is that the fraction of state forces that engage in high levels of rape is higher than the fraction of rebel forces that do so. We didn't know that before. That was new. Right? So much of the imagery is about rebel forces, but in fact, state forces, as a fraction of state forces, that fraction is higher. And then third, she pointed to the case of Sierra Leone, 
where the rebels engaged in high levels of rape and the other forces did not, she shows that that sustained asymmetry is true of almost 40% of civil wars. That is a theory-laden fact that we also didn't know before. And I think that some of the work that's being done now is trying to really explicate that fact, which uh, the, data set document, the data set documented. Okay, so the original theory, she laid it out for you. Others had pointed um, to the role of rape in socializing people into armed, uh, armed organizations like gangs. So there are some gangs that you're forced as a new recruit to engage in rape, for example. And we know that participation in that does socialize people. Um, but Dara sharpened the argument to explain the variation in the data set by pointing out that it's groups that forcibly re uh, recruit. So that could be state forces that wait outside high schools or wait outside pool halls or um, movie theaters and just sweep kids off the street. Or it could be rebel forces that sweep through villages and just forcibly and nearly randomly pick people uh, up off of their homes. They then face this problem of how to forge the kind of cohesion that's necessary to survive in the midst of a civil war. So her argument then leverages the power of taboo acts, right? So gang rape is not something tolerated in society. It's a highly taboo act. And so combatants force new recruits to participate in gang rape. And that participation forges the social bonds necessary for social cohesion. And it breaks the ties with the community. A lot of the gang rape actually happens in the recruits' home community in front of the public of that village. So you're breaking those ties and forging these other ones. Um, now, of the different kinds of taboo acts that you can imagine happening in that scene, why gang rape? Why not force people to kill their mother, for example? Well, Dara uh, laid out uh, one argument about precarious masculinity and makes in her written work another argument about venereal disease. People participating in gang rape are very likely um, to uh, catch and spread venereal disease. And she shows in her remarkable interviews in Sierra Leone that combatants understood that. They knew the kind of risk they were running. And untreated venereal disease in, out in the forest in Sierra Leone is a very ugly, ugly disease and really undermines the effectiveness of a military organization. So those are some of the reasons why it's gang rape, not something else. It's precisely because it is so costly that if forced to do it, come, you come out the other side of that experience with these social bonds. Think about some of the humiliation that we know occurs in fraternities, in marching bands and so on, right? That kind of humiliation and hazing leads to this strong social bond afterwards. Okay, so an original theory. Field research. Dare is one of the few researchers who has talked not to victims, not to combatants generally, but combatants who themselves raped. That is a strong achievement uh, on the field research side. And what she found supports the mechanism that she emphasizes in her theory, uh, particularly in the interviews in Sierra Leone, that the combatants were not ordered they were forced to participate, and they understood the medical risks they thereby run, ran. So among other things, it's a beautiful example of multi-method work, right? That you have the original data set, original theory, and this great field research that um, uh, demonstrates the mechanisms. So stepping back and thinking more broadly, the work is 
you can see it as part of a recent stream of social science that focuses on the internal processes of armed organizations, uh, their institutions, their practices, and so on. So call that the organizational turn. What she contributes to that literature, I think, is this particular focus on the horizontal and informal forms of socialization and the conditions under which it takes the form of gang rape with the kinds of consequences uh, for civil society that we see. Moreover, it remarkably contributes to bringing research on social, uh, sorry, on sexual violence into the mainstream of social science. So if you'll let me to digress for a minute, I first met Dara about a decade ago uh, at a conference, one of her advisors at Stanford, Jeremy Weinstein, with whom I had a long ongoing correspondence about his work and my work, emailed me to ask me to meet with a very promising student who was interested in wartime sexual violence, which I was working on. And we met, and I was impressed. I was impressed with her commitment. She had already served as a rape crisis counselor as an undergraduate, and also with her intelligence. But I did feel, as someone more senior, a doctoral student thinking about what she was going to work on for the next several years of her life, I felt I did have to warn her that the issue, sadly, in our discipline is, was seen as a marginal one and that she might not succeed in publishing in top venues if she worked on it at this stage of her career. Was I wrong? Really, really, really wrong. So Catherine mentioned that she published the lead article from her work in the APSR and won the major prize for the APSR, that's extraordinary for something on sexual violence. Really, really extraordinary. Moreover, the second article, which emphasizes the power of socialization in socializing women to engage in mass rape, was published in World Politics, another major, major journal of uh, our discipline. And then, of course, her book is published by Cornell. So I think it's very important that uh, to acknowledge the way in which Dara's work by doing such excellent social science is moving this, this subject into um, uh, social science more generally. It's really an extraordinary achievement, a testimony to her intelligence, judgment, good intellectual judgment, and her perseverance. Moreover, working with Ronhild Norda Ciprio, she then took her data set and built it out to a data set called the Sexual Violence During Armed Conflict data set that sits at Prio. You can download it and do all sorts of things uh, with it. And so several recent articles draw either on Dara's data set on rape during civil war or this much broader data set uh, at Prio on so all sorts of things. So in articles, uh, let me just read you some of the topics, peacetime and war, whether peacetime and wartime levels of sexual violence are correlated. What are the motivations for women to join armed groups? What does that, does sexual violence have something to do with that? On whether wartime rape predicts the fraction of female combatants, a related um, uh, question. Uh, whether um, rape in a previous war predicts whether those people are then sent on a peacekeeping mission on the UN. Does that predict sexual abuse and exploitation by that UN mission? plus two dissertations, plus many articles in progress. So the data set itself is also uh, a contribution to social science that we really need um, to recognize and honor. Moreover, Dara combines, as Catherine mentioned, first-rate social science with public engagement. She is a leader uh, in the USIP's network of young scholars working on sexual violence and the author of various op-eds 
policy briefs, blogs, etc. A few of those are with me, and I have to say it's always a pleasure to work with you. I so appreciate your approach, how scholarly it is, how focused on the issues, and how you want to bring those to make a difference on this issue. Now, has this work uh, had an impact on public policy? It's really hard to say. Certainly, there is a leading scholar often called to speak about policy and to practitioners, but that rhetoric about rape being a strategy of war is really persistent. On the other hand, we now see um, policy organizations such as UN Women using the rhetoric that rape is not inevitable during war because not all armed organizations engage in it. So I'm hopeful that, that Dara's work and the work of all of us is beginning to have an impact on public policy. So there is some pickup I think we can see. So the book does leave, I think, a research agenda. So, for example, um, gang rape by armed organizations uh, that forcibly recruit is an example of what I call rape as a practice, a practice of war versus a strategy of war. That is, it's tolerated and driven by social dynamics. Um, so under what conditions does it emerge? I think Dara's work really focuses on the processes that sustain it, but not all groups that forcibly recruit do engage in gang rape. So think of the Lord's Resistance Army has a different pattern of sexual uh, violence against uh, civilians. Um, so what are the particular conditions under which it emerges and how do, where does gender come in there? Um, uh, and of course that begs the question of under what conditions do other forms of rape as a practice emerge? Second, there's this sharp contrast in rape as a practice and most powerfully um, exemplified by Dara's work on gang rape on the part of groups that forcibly recruit, that is in sharp contrast to rape as a strategy, rape as a policy on the part of armed groups. So this work really begs the, the question, so what is the logic on the part of organizations that do purposefully adopt rape as a policy, sometimes as a military strategy and sometimes for other reasons that, that I'd be happy to talk about during the Q&A. Uh, and that is, of course, rape that is jointly produced by it's ordered or authorized from above and then engaged in by combatants. Okay, so third, is the legacy of rape, gang rape in particular, carried out by organizations that forcibly recruit is the legacy different from other cases of mass rape driven by other kinds of logics? That's another piece of the, um, of the, the research agenda that the book leaves in its wake, I think. And then finally, uh, I just wanted to um, open up the, the question about the organizational turn that I mentioned, this focus on armed organizations rather than conflicts or overarching things like culture and so on, does run certain risks um, by focusing so deeply on armed organization. Uh, so what are the risks that we run if we um, focus only on a single organization and maybe miss some of the dynamics with other organizations? So um, it's, it's a delight to be here for this event, and I look forward to the discussion. Thank you. Thank you so much. And also, timing. So we're opening it up to you. Um, so if you could just I guess I have a question for either Dara or Professor Wood, or both of you, which is if you could say a little bit about 
the daylight between you. If, if the two of you have worked on this, both of you, it sounds like for a very long time, and you've collaborated a little bit. I didn't hear, I think, uh, in Professor Wood's comments about where the two of you may differ on some of these important interpretive questions. And I wonder if, if there is such day daylight and if you could speak to that. Okay. So um, uh, what I'm doing in the book that I'm writing is sees rape as a practice as one form in which mass rape emerges. The other form is rape that is purposefully adopted as a policy. So, uh, and I also think that there are other ways in which rape as a practice may emerge. It may not only be gang rape uh, under conditions of forcible recruitment. So, and moreover, I'm also looking at armed organizations that don't engage in rape. And then finally, I'm also looking at forms of sexual violence other than rape. So, for example, sexual torture, I think, is probably more often adopted purposefully as a policy by an organization than rape is. Purposefully adopted as a policy, sexual torture of detainees is a very common practice on the part of states, on the part of some rebel organizations, so I'm also looking at that. Um, uh, and so the, the forms are important. Um, then the, the final um, piece that I'm working on in my book is the way in which an organization may purposefully adopt, say, rape as a policy, and sometimes indeed for the reasons um, that are emphasized in the uh, rape, as a war, um, rape as a weapon of war argument, so for ethnic cleansing or for genocide. But often organizations adopt rape as a policy for other reasons. So, for example, to manage the sexual and reproductive lives of its combatants. So forms of forced marriage and sexual slavery are sometimes adopted by organizations, be they states or be they insurgent groups, for organizational reasons, not for more short-run military purposes. So that's another distinction that I'm drawing. And then finally, the audience for the book that I'm writing is I aspire that it will be read by a broad audience, including policymakers, uh, at the level not just of kind of UN State Department kind of policy member um, policy organizations, but also on the level of the many attorneys and human rights activists that I've met in various countries who are activists on these issues, and I hope to write in a prose that's accessible and interesting to them. So it's not going to be an academic book. Yeah, I think that pretty much covers it. Other than to say, I think, you know, we've been working together. I've been sort of studying with you and learning from you. So I think in general, I would say we probably both agree about the idea of rape as a practice. But I also think in some of Libby's arguments, she focuses a lot more on the norms that fighters bring with them into armed groups and how that can also affect the way rape and other forms of sexual violence take shape within that armed group. Um, and how those norms also inform the informal socialization practices that happen within groups. Um, and some of your work, I think, also focuses a bit more on the role of commanders, um, mm -hmm. in part because the question is a bit broader, looking at when rape is ordered and is is um, used as a policy as well. So um, in my argument, commanders are a lot less important, I think. The, they sort of tolerate but don't really direct 
the violence, and I think that's a bit different in some of Libby's work as well. If I could, you can notice my different reading too, where the jointly produced, um, Libby has clearly jointly produced, and in I was arguing cases. in, some, in cases. some cases, but you have a, a theory like yeah. that, whereas Dara is the, and I think the question of emergence is the one we both sort of have a, a question on. To me, my reading of Dara's book is that it can emerge for these local reasons, and as she's just saying, the commanders don't play the same clear role that in some of your cases. And therefore, that's why I interpreted it as sort of it sort of emerges out of the bottom and may be accepted more, but it's not the same kind of joint production in some of the other cases. Um, Dara Cohen fan club. Um, this is just tremendous, uh, tremendous presentation. But um, I, I had two questions. The first was the point about venereal disease that you made, Libby. That really seemed to throw a wrench in the argument for me because. You know, the argument, the tune that I hum about Dara's book is the, you know, that commanders are going to tolerate this cohesion building behavior of mass rape because ultimately it's good for war fighting. Like now you've got a cohesive group full of Roger Peterson's X pluses and they're going to be better at fighting. But now I've learned, no, actually they've all got gonorrhea and they're in the jungle. So they're going to be actually much less effective at fighting. So if I'm a commander... Actually, why would I tolerate this? This is actually really bad for my mission. So that's the big question I had. The second question I had was just, I don't understand the policy prescription. You talked a lot, Libby, about policy, but if the story is correct, and I believe the story as much as I believe the Quran, that you know this is basically going to be something that happens when you recruit fighters through press ganging, etc., uh, what, what policy prescription are you going to have? Like naming and shaming groups that are engaging in mass rape and press ganging people, I don't, like, a priori have no reason to expect that to be effective. It seems to me like you're telling me this is just going to be an endemic condition of this kind of conflict. Yeah, thanks for those questions. This actually relates back to one of Roger's points as well about the difference between task cohesion and social cohesion. So one of the things I try to be really careful about, because some of the early readings of my work actually made me feel really concerned um, about this point, is some critics said, well, you know, if I were a commander with a sort of ragtag army, maybe I could read your book as a kind of guide to creating a more effective more effective fighting force by kind of encouraging episodes of mass rape. So I, I, I wanted to be very clear, and I hope this, I accomplished this in the book, about talking about the differences between task cohesion and social cohesion. I think gang rape increases social cohesion. It does not, has nothing to do with task cohesion. Task cohesion is built through basic training, through drills, through understanding the process of war fighting. But gang rape increases social cohesion. And so what this means is that just that the group can sort of hold together as an armed group. But it has, has, again, sort of no bearing on whether that armed group is effective as a fighting force. And in fact, looking at the, the RUF in Sierra Leone, they were terrible fighters. They lost nearly every battle they fought. Um, they were just, they were not a good uh, fi- fighting force. However, uh, we know from some of Jeremy Weinstein's survey work, they were incredibly cohesive by the end of the war, which is a puzzle I try to leverage in the book because it was a group that was composed of something like 96% abductees. So um, it raises some interesting questions that I, I argue at least that violence, including gang rape, sort of helped resolve this problem of having a very low morale, low cohesion group. Um, and we see the, the cohesion actually carrying on in the aftermath of the war. The question about STDs, I talk a little bit about this in the book. I didn't mention it in my comments, but it, it sort of is in part a, one of my critiques of the kind of current discourse, which often treats rape as a costless weapon. 
So one of the things I wanted to do is try to understand, well, what are the costs, especially if you're a kind of group like RUF, um, what are the costs to you of rape? And of course, there have to be some costs because if rape were as effective um, and as terrifying and as cheap as it's often treated in a lot of the policy discourse, then it should be actually used probably a lot more often than we actually observe it being used. So one of the, the costs that became apparent in Sierra Leone was that many of the fighters were contracting in, in the case of Sierra Leone, syphilis and gonorrhea, it was untreated, and that this had a somewhat immediate effect on the fighting ability of the people who are engaged in, in episodes of, of mass rape. So that raises some questions about the role of the commanders. And one of the things that I did in Sierra Leone and I read about in the book is the kind of ambivalent role that commanders often play where they were kind of reaping the rewards of the socially cohesive benefits of tolerating this form of violence, but they were also recognizing in some cases that there were some significant costs. There's one story that I include in the book about a commander who was explaining that he felt, um, again, in this sort of ambivalent way, that he that there was an important uh, role for rape in some sense, but he, was, he described a story where one of his kind of best fighters got sick with gonorrhea and was unable to walk. He couldn't move. And so they had, rather, they had a choice of either leaving him behind when they had to leave um, or killing him. And they ended up deciding to kill him. And he was really sort of haunted by this. So anyways, it, there, there are some significant costs to rape as well, which is what I was trying to emphasize um, by looking at STDs. In terms of the policy prescriptions, one of the kind of depressing outcomes of, of the argument, I think, is that rather in contrast, I, I think, to the sort of dominant narrative around rape being a weapon of war, a strategy of war, where there's sort of clear policy interventions. All we need to do is find the bad guys that are ordering this, and then we will have no more rape in wartime. It's much more complicated with my argument. I think, you know, the truth is there are limited things we can do. And there are some things I think we, we can do. And one of the sort of interesting patterns is that a lot of rape in wartime seems to be perpetrated by states. Um, and we know from some of the um, really interesting social science research that's been published in recent years that naming and shaming seems particularly effective for state perpetrators of human rights violations, that states care a lot about their reputations. Um, and so when something like rape becomes public um, and is talked about repeatedly in a, in a way that is particularly shaming, perhaps this will have an effect um, and make rape um, less less likely. But yeah, I mean, I, I hear the point, and I take the point, and I agree with the point, which is that, that there aren't clear, simple, easy policy solutions that follow from the argument. I've also been a fan of this work since I first saw it in the APSR, so thank you for your talk. Uh, the two questions I have are kind of how this relates to other research we know in the Civil War context. How does the use of sexualized violence interact with non-sexualized violence, especially if it's creating group cohesion, if we kind of like mix that in with Jeremy Weinstein's argument, does that mean that we may see more instances of wartime rape, but less instances of other types of victimization because there's more group cohesion? But also kind of tying it back into the strategic level or maybe, you know, what other things we will see from this. And that is, I'm wondering to what extent this affects the duration of war, to the extent that if we're focusing a lot on the bonds that are broken with society, as Professor Wood said, does that mean that these combatants are less likely to want to go back home after war ends, or they're less likely to kind of see a conclusion, so they're more willing to fight and it increases resolve. So just kind of, I'm trying to think of more of like the downstream effects uh, that wartime rape can have on the duration of conflict and other types of violence. 
Yeah, thank you. So how does this relate to other forms of violence? Well, one of the things that I was interested in when I started this project is trying to build on and critique some of the previous work that had been done. As you may know, a lot of the previous work on civilian victimization during wartime sort of operationalized civilian abuse broadly defined as killing because the assumption was that, well, killing and non-lethal violence must move together. These must be highly correlated things. So let's just measure the thing that's relatively easy to measure, which is bodies. Um, and then that will tell us something also about the patterns of non-lethal violence. Um, so one of the sort of tasks of this book is to kind of pick that apart a bit. That's really an empirical question. We can sort of trace over time if we have data on what, you know, what looting looks like over the course of a war, what rape looks like over the course of the war, and what killing looks like over the course of a war. Um, and then we can see sort of how closely correlated these actually are. Um, in the cross-national data, I can show that the killing and rape are correlated, but not all that closely. Um, and in the case study chapters, I try to trace in particular looting, rape, and killing when the data are available. And, you know, they're, they're some, if you look at the trend lines over time, they're somewhat closely related, although peaks in killing and peaks in rape and peaks in looting are rarely in the same year, right? So there's sort of, I think, different underlying logics that help us understand these forms of violence. Since you brought up Jeremy Weinstein's argument, I'll just say something um, briefly about that. He was um, one of my advisors at Stanford. I respect him and his work very much. Um, but one of the things that he does in his work is he looks at volunteer fighters, right? And he has an argument about why do people... You know, the, the ways that people come to join armed groups, is it because they're drawn due to ideological reasons or is it because they're drawn due to the attraction of material resources? And one of my critiques of his work is that there are actually quite a number, and one of the things I do in the book is, is look at this, quite a number of armed groups in contemporary civil wars where there are no volunteers or very few volunteers or the majority of the people in the group never volunteered. They were kidnapped and literally forced to join. And so how then do we make sense of the kinds of violence that occurs as a result of Though Jeremy's argument is that groups that use material incentives are more likely to attract essentially a, a bad type of person um, who uh, wants to join an armed group because of access to drugs or diamonds, and therefore those types of groups are more likely to be violent. And the violence is, is not really strategic, it's just sort of an unfortunate outcome of having armed groups that consist of those kinds of people. Um, so part of what I try to do in this book is unpack some of that, think about the, um, what happens in armed groups where people didn't choose to join, and is it possible that the forms of violence are actually more meaningful than just kind of an unfortunate outcome of the types of people in, in the group. Finally, on your last question on duration of war, I mean, I very briefly look at this in the sense that duration is uh, one of the variables in the cross-national analysis. But I think you're bringing up an, a number of really interesting questions that are sort of at the cutting edge of a lot of the, this civil wars and violence research, which is sort of what happens in the aftermath. Um, another sort of interesting question is what happens to combatants themselves? Are they more likely to go fight other wars? Are they more likely to go with their friends to fight other wars? Are they more likely to start wars within their own country? These are all sort of open questions and I think really interesting ones that we don't have answers to yet. Hi, I'm Namrata from the Kennedy School. So I think that this is for Professor Wood. Uh, this is uh, now outside of the realm of, uh, uh, of rape. So when you're lo talking about sexual violence, uh, which is not rape, I just wanted to know how this is discussed within, uh, within an armed organization. I mean, how, how explicit or implicit is it? Do they, uh, I mean, I'm trying to communicate what's in my head, but basically, for instance, if there's a commander, does he discuss this with uh, 
his peer group and and then is it deliberately rolled out to the rest of the organization or is it a behavior that that just happens and then the organization kind of evolves with that behavior in the case of an organization that doesn't engage in rape yeah. So um, the person who's done the best work on this is Amelia Hoover Green, another of our colleagues in this community of social scientists working on this. And what she shows in her work is that because of the experience of war, it's likely that uh, as combatants experience war that they will begin to possibly do things that they wouldn't have imagined they would do earlier in the war. So the tendency of war itself is to widen repertoires and widen targeting and so on. So her argument is that if an organization is not going to allow that to happen but really retain a very limited use of violence, then what they have to do is to repeatedly indoctrinate the combatants into why the organization does not allow that. So it's it's repeating that it doesn't allow that, but uh, it, but it's a form of indoctrination. So you're asking your combatants, you're insisting that your combatants, not just that they um, will be disciplined if they do something, but that these are the reasons why you should not, right? So she studied, for example, the FMLN in El Salvador, looking at their training manuals and their training practices and uh, how reiterated that was. And one result, is, she argues, is that uh, the FMLN engaged in very little rape compared to other organizations. Its use of other forms of violence was very narrow, and so on. So that's her argument. That's what it takes. In work I've done on other organizations, I think that other kinds of institutions may be able to reproduce uh, a low uh, incidence of rape. So I looked at the LTTE in, in Sri Lanka. And there, I think that it was a matter of the fact that you had very good information flows up and down the chain of command because you had a separate channel, right? So you had a kind of military chain of command, but then there was a separate way for information to flow up and down so that there was a kind of accountability. And in that case, discipline, it seemed, um, was uh, so people who did engage in rape were punished in really horrific ways. And so that was an organization that, though, think of the other violence that it engaged in against civilians, it appears to have engaged in little rape of civilians. What was the other channel? So uh, uh, it was a, a different hierarchical hierarchy of military intelligence that was separate from the military chain of command. Yeah. Can I say just yeah. two quick things on, on Tarek's question? Because I think this is the puzzle I was trying to bring was that social cohesion versus long-term forms of effectiveness, which I think is really a, a big puzzle yeah. here. And my impression of reading her cases is that there were times when there was just a big surge of these X-minuses, and there was just such pressure to not have them defect or shoot each other or whatever that social cohesion became the immediate thing that hit them in the face. And these longer, you know, VD, it shows up a while, you know, probabilistically, this kind of thing. It was, it was like put on the back burner because the social cohesion at uh, these surges of these, these people coming in was so bad. Uh, the other thing on naming and shaming, this is a very good question about when that's productive or not. Mm -hmm. uh, being married to a Serbian immigrant, being around Serbs for 35 years, to go say, hey, Serbs, you're rapists, it, it ain't going to work. You know, so I'm not sure who that works with and who it, who it doesn't. But my impression is you got to either frame this or it's going to work in certain cases or not. Well, I don't think we know when that 
That's a good question about policy. Well, on that note, I will add something myself. That is, I, you may be referring to some research by Amanda Murdy, and Amanda Murdy has shown effectiveness of naming and shaming, but when you have both international and domestic groups, in other words, it's partly the existence of domestic social movements that are speaking out about it, working together with international pressure that's delivering the outcome for naming and shaming. And I think that's a really important thing to remember when we recommend it. I want to thank very much Dara and our two discussants for, I think, excellent uh, remarks and the audience for terrific questions. I know some of you didn't get a chance to ask your questions. We do have a chance to, uh, I think there's still some drinks out there, maybe something to eat. So I know that uh, you will stay to answer any additional questions people have. So do st stick around and, and continue the conversation for a while during uh, a reception afterwards. Thank you very much.